This week we conclude our series, The Journey of Joseph, as we look at the most significant event in his life, the forgiveness of his brothers. What does that process look like? How did God work on his heart? And what does God expect of us as we each face people that we are so uh, reluctant to forgive? This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, August 30th, 2015. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, we are in our final, this is our final of our series in the book of Joseph, so this is it. Uh, we said it would end on the 30th, and that's what's going to happen. Uh, next week, Pastor Spiegelberg is going to be here. The last time I could get him as a guest preacher, because they start their full-time services, we've been praying for their church, they start the 13th of September, and then the train starts moving, that's what I say, because once it goes, you can't, you don't get breaks, so... I said, hey, how about I get you for Labor Day? And there's a reason for that. There's a, um, a group, this is just side note, I'll probably edit it out, but uh, Time of Grace, if anyone knows timeofgrace.org, uh, Pastor Mark Jeske, so he preaches around um, in Milwaukee, but they broadcast him around the country. They're looking to add content, so they reached out to a number of pastors, uh, about five of us, and said, would you be willing to put some content up? And so they initially were going to come and film here on Sundays, which would have been kind of strange, I think, because we're trying to work really hard just to get stuff set up. Uh, today, we didn't get the trailer until about 9.15, so then you imagine that that pressure on top of more pressure. I said, well, tell you what, I preach a series on the book of Joseph, and, or not the book of Joseph, but on Joseph. How about I do four sermons in four days if you're willing to come out here? So they said, deal, and it's a lot easier for them, and they don't have to bring all kinds of equipment because if we do it outside, it's, the lighting's already there, and it's always sunny in Colorado. They might not want to leave when they're done, but they're coming out of Milwaukee. So that's the, that's the side note. So Pastor Spiegelberg is being nice enough to preach for me so that I can preach. Uh, with today, I'll preach five sermons in five days. So <laughs> so, we're at, uh, so we're in the book of Genesis, and we're talking about Joseph. And today, I think, is, uh, we've been following kind of his life. And his life, is, as we saw, goes up and down and up and down and up and down. And I think it resonates a lot with us as you see someone who is so engaged into the promise of a Savior to come that it affects his life. And he's probably most famous for, uh, in the series of things, his coat, and then fleeing Potiphar's wife. But probably the most, the most impressive thing to me is when we start talking about forgiveness is what we're going to talk about today. So I see this as the culmination of the life of Joseph and the thing that I think every single person in here struggles with. And I, think, I don't think it's a stretch to say that uh, every person in here has someone in mind. If I said, who is someone you struggle to forgive? Every single person here has someone that you are in the process and you're struggling to forgive. And I want to make a distinction because uh, just a couple of weeks ago we talked about someone who has disappointed you. I think that's different than someone who's hurt you. So disappointed is when your husband does not remember your anniversary or your wife does not remember your birthday. These are not real examples in my own life. Um, this is, they're not real examples. Like, everyone's like, mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, that would be an example of someone who's disappointed you. I gave an example of a football coach in this weird wrestling thing, which is the b- most bizarre thing ever. That was someone who disappointed me because you looked up to him. So you have teachers, your kids, yourself, God, um, all of these people in your life and all of these um, have disappointed you on some level. And our takeaway was simply this. In a sinful world, people are going to disappoint. But don't let that reflect the God who says, I'm doing everything I can to build a relationship between us and make things right. That's category one. I think that's pretty easy to get over. Right? I'm not still embittered about someone who's disappointed me. 
when someone hurts you, though, I think is a whole different level. When someone physically has hurt you, someone emotionally has hurt you, financially, they've done something to you that is so painful that it goes beyond just disappointment. And I think everyone here wrestles with that. And I think when we look at the life of Joseph, he is at that moment where the people who have heard him stand before him, and I think that makes sense to you. Give me one paragraph to get him to that spot, though, okay? Um, One paragraph. He's part of a, some of you have been here every week, and you're like, okay, we got it. Uh, So remember, he's part of this dysfunctional family. He's got three stepmothers, which would have been just crazy. His father loves him more than his brothers, which is fantastic, right, if you're the one who people like the most. It doesn't feel so great, though, when you're not. And it affects the way his brothers treat him and talk to him. Scripture says that his brothers don't even say one kind word to him. That escalates to, it says, the brothers hate him. That escalates to a point where it seems conceivable that when they see him in the distance, they say, let's kill him. Let's get rid of this guy. That's going to be the, you know, the solution to all our problems. Well, his older brother, for one time, has some, some reason. Read about Reuben. It's not always good. But Reuben, this one time, says, okay, I'll hide him in the cistern, and then, uh, instead of killing him, we'll just hide him here, and then he intended to take him back to his dad. Well, in the meantime, Judah, his other brother, there's ten, Judah says, you know what, let's make some money on him, and we'll sell him to these human traffickers, so that's what they do. So let's just talk time. Um, Time in Ira Glass. Has anyone listened to NPR and Ira Glass, This American Life? That's one of my favorite segments from it. So Word Power and then um, Click and Clack, the Tappert Brothers, and uh, Will Shorts on Sunday morning. I used to listen to it, but now I can't because I'd be coming to Sunday trying to figure out the puzzler of the day, so I can't do that anymore. And then uh, Ira Glass. So it's really fascinating. He's got glasses about this big, and he films, and he records. He was talking about plan A versus plan B. And he had a room of about 100 people, so just a couple more than here. And he said, okay, how many of you are still living plan A? I should ask, how many of you are still living plan A in your life? He did this with a room of 100 people. One person raised their hand. Guess how old they were? 23. 23. And the whole entire room, one, is working their plan. So let's just talk about Joseph's plan A. Joseph's plan A is to work for his father, to do really well. He has servants, and and he's going to be this, you know, the head of the shepherd thinks he's already in a management role at 17. He's kind of being groomed for this. They give him the pretty coat and everything. That does not work out. Plan B, then, is he becomes a slave for 11 years. And so what's his plan B? I'm going to become the best slave that I can be. And he does. He works for Potiphar, and he excels until he honors his boss and honors his God, and he honors the covenant of marriage and refuses to be seduced because I'm not going to do it. And then we have plan C because he goes to jail. So what's he do in jail? So we've got plan A, plan B, plan C. In jail, he says, I'm going to be the best person in jail ever, and he does. He moves up in the rank. He's looking after people. He's now two years in jail, and then finally, the person who disappointed him remembers him, and he gets put plan D, which is to run kind of all of Egypt's agricultural division. Just timeline, just so you know, I got to go. Okay, just timeline. He's 17 when he gets sold to traffickers. He is a slave for about 11 years, so now he's about 28. He's in prison for about two years, and he becomes CEO or COO of um, Egypt at 30, which is impressive, um, by 30. Now, remember, we're trying to guess what his age is now. Remember the famine? How long was the years of plenty going to last? Seven years. So now he's 37, and the famine is starting to hit home, even in Canaan and Egypt, and they're doling out food, 
somewhere maybe one, two years into it, Joseph's like my age. He's like 39 years old, which is pretty fascinating to me. So he's 39 years old, and there stand before him um, his brothers. So I just read the book, uh, Missoula. Has anyone read that by John Krakauer? My wife works at a library, so she brings me books all the time. I read like 10% of them. Uh, but she, she's got great books. But this one seemed fascinating. My, one of my best friends lives in Missoula, so I thought this is going to be good, so I want to read this. And it's an expose about how often acquaintance rape is in college campuses. And it's, it's hard to read as a dad because um, you think about there's going to be a point where my little girls are going off to college, and we have this idea of um, like assault and rape that happened, just happened in Snowmass where someone literally has like the ski mask and the guy comes out of the bushes late in the night. They said that it does not happen very often. In fact, the police chief at Snowmass, he, he says, I can't even explain it. This has not happened here. And they're just trying to figure out what's going on. Much, 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 much more often is when the, the attacker knows the person that they've assaulted. And the book is really hard for me because you start hearing about how um, it, it totally affects the, the victim's life, because oftentimes they're not convicted. That was what the book was kind of pressing on, and they don't believe the person, and in fact, the victim is made to be shamed by the community, and this is a football town, and the other person, this is what the hardest part was, when they go through depression or anxiety or they don't feel safe or they um, now become promiscuous, they have self-loathing and all PTSD, and all their life is like barely functioning. They come often go back and live at home, and they bury that down, and they think they're doing okay. And then there, they go to the bar, they go to someone's house, and there's the very person who has assaulted them, just functioning like their life's no big deal. Joseph now. Joseph's 39 years old. Uh, you know, he's on Plan D. He's working Plan D, and it's going pretty well, right? And he, and he has all these feelings of his brothers and what they've done. And in the middle of his day, just think about that, like in the middle of his work day, he's popular, he's married, life is good, he's got respect. There stand the ones who have brought so much hurt to him. I can't help but think that all those feelings that he buried up down deep, deep, deep had to be coming up. When I was a kid and I'd hear the story of Joseph, Joseph was always like way up here for me. And I thought, wow, what an amazing guy. His brothers do this to him, and he weeps with joy so many times in the exchange. You, you read that? Do you wonder, is life so black and white that every time he's just excited to see his brothers? Or do you think there's a mixture between seeing his family for the first time in 20 years and the reality of what his brothers have done to him? Because here's reality. When you confront the person that hurt you, when you're thinking of the person you're struggling with forgiving, you must also confront what that person took away from you. And so some of you, the person that you're thinking of, you're thinking, that person stole my innocence. That person stole our, our family dynamics. They've ruined a family, yet all these dreams, what was going to be just right. And they're the ones who took that away. That person stole my best years. That person stole my reputation. That person maybe stole your money. That person stole your job. That person stole the joy in life. You have to, before you would ever think about taking a step forward, you got to think about what has that person stolen from you. Just like those girls in Missoula, all those feelings. That's what my mom, who's a school counselor, uh, retired now. She would say, you know, Jared, people go right back to it. 
And now they're confronted by that person. Here's Joseph. Do you think he is so mature that when he sees them, he's all over it? Or do you think it takes him right back to the moment to a vulnerable 17-year-old boy who's treated like a piece of meat and sold to traffickers? I think that explains a little bit because now we see the process. And in the process of God working, we just talked about last week, on his brothers, this long process to work on their heart and bring them to a point where they recognize their guilt. I'm pretty sure God's working on Joseph's heart. At first it says he spoke harshly to them. He spoke harshly to his brothers and he immediately throws them into prison. He starts questioning them and he puts them into prison for three days. He says, you know what? Unless you bring your younger brother here, you're going to stay in prison. I'll let you send one person. Three days go by and he changes his mind. He says, all right, I will send one. I will send one of you. I mean, I'll let one stay, Simeon, and the rest of you can go, but you better bring the younger brother back with you. This is his process. While this is all happening, surely we are being punished because of our brother. And he's hearing all this. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. This is after they got out of prison. He turned away from them and began to weep. But then came back and spoke to them again. He said, and had Simeon taken from them, bound before their very eyes. Is that weeping just pure joy that his brothers are coming to a point of confession or is that weeping thinking about what his brothers have done to him and how he has to face all of that all over again? And there stand before him. He's got all the power in the world. There's no judge. There's no jury. Did anyone complain when they said we're going to put him in prison for three days? There's no appeals court. But there they stand before him and he says, okay, you go back, get your brother. We don't know how long this takes. They've got all this sacks of food. They go all the way back to Canaan. This is not like around the corner. You know, this is not like going to King Supers or something. This is a long trip. So they bring all the grain that they can. They use up all that grain. And then finally, you know, Simeon's forgotten. And then finally, their father says, okay, we need some food. And they're like, we're not going back without Benjamin. And the dad is like, hmm, you know, I've already lost jo uh, Joseph. I've already lost Simeon. All right, we'll send him. So Judah makes a promise that says, all right, if you send him with me, I will be accountable to him. He goes all the way back, and you know how the story goes, right? Joseph is weeping as he sees his brother for the first time, his blood brother. This is blood, same mother, same father. He's weeping with joy, and he throws this big banquet. Uh, we talked about it just last week. So there's this big banquet. He lines them up in order. They have this huge feast, and at times he has to leave, remember, to, to weep because he's trying to deal with all this stuff. And finally he says, okay, final test, final, final. You guys all go, but he takes his silver cup, remember, and he puts it in Benjamin's sack, sends him on his way, and he sends his own guards after him. And then this is what transpires when they finally get back, and it's in Benjamin's sack, and they see that it's in Benjamin's sack, and the brothers are like, what do we do? This is God judging us. This is Judah's response, and this is the longer version. We didn't go through all last week. Then Judah went up to him and said, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or brother? And we answered, we have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. 
His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him to me, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When he went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said he has surely been torn to pieces. And I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring, me, bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and my father whose life is closely bound up with this boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. And I said, if I do not bring him back to you, that was, not a, that was the key moment. Can you hit that? I do not know what's happening here. Bear the blame before my father all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave. We talked about this last week. In the place of the boy and let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No. Do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. We, we spent some time last week. What an amazing confession that is by Judah. Who's, um, Judah has a son later on, a, a, an ancestor down the line named David. David has an ancestor all the way named Jesus who stands before God in your place. And I think that's a powerful picture, the real Judah. But now, uh, Joseph hears this confession. God has worked on his brother's hearts. He's worked on Joseph's hearts. And this is what comes. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. He cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there's no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly, the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Think of that person. Think, what would you do? I'll say it this way. I've counseled a number of people, and some have had really traumatic experiences, and some, especially uh, abuse of their own family and themselves, said, if I ever see that person again, I'm going to kill him. What would you do if the person you're struggling to forgive was standing right before you and you have the power to forgive or not forgive? You have the power to bring retribution and pain and just an inkling of what they have done to you. You have the power to just let them feel for a moment what it was like and what you've had to go through for years or months or decades. What do you do? Joseph. And Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. 
Beautiful story. I think here's the problem. The person you're thinking of did not fall down at your feet. The person you're struggling to forgive has not sat down at your feet and begged for your forgiveness. The person who has stolen innocence and safety and security, a positive outlook at life, the person who's stolen your money or your reputation or the best years or time with your kids has not groveled at your feet and said, I am so, so sorry for what I've done. I cannot believe I would ever do something. And if you never talk to me again, I totally understand. There's no way I can make it up to you. I'm just so sorry. Because I think that person you would have already forgiven. I think the person that you're struggling to forgive has never said those words. Amy and I, um, we had Monday off, and we went to Ikea. I went to Snooze and shared an omelet, went to Ikea. And uh, we're in Ikea, and we had to pick up a few things, so we made our way through, like, the two-and-a-half-mile rat maze, right? You feel like, you feel like they should, like, have uh, the music for cowboys because you're making your way through this. And it's even set up like a rat maze, right? I mean, they, what happens at the end of a rat maze? They give you cheese. What happens at the end of Ikea? They have subsidized ice cream. They lose money on that ice cream just so that you get done, and you're like, oh, there's a treat. And then you're like, Pavlov's like the rat. You're hitting the, the bar, just like, this is awesome. I'll get a 50-cent hot dog and some ice cream. I feel like I've made it through. We made a mistake, though. Uh, Amy and I went through, and we, it was, we were getting hungry. I said, hey, let's get some meatballs, right? This makes sense. They have a restaurant. And so we, we just walked in, and we went out of the checkout. We made it through the maze, feeling good about ourselves. We go up to the escalator. We enjoy our meatballs. Those are also subsidized, I think, by the Swedish government. Actually, by us, because they have so many tax breaks. Did you know that? They do. They, I don't think they pay any city or state tax, but... So, we, so we, I'm just trying to get you invigorated like I am at, at Ikea. So we go all the way through, we enjoy it, and we're like, okay, let's, let's head out because we've got to go pick up the kids. And um, so we go down the stairs, and it's like Hotel California. There's no knobs. Have you noticed that? Like it, the, the people can come in, and then they shut. There's no knobs. You can't get out. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, like I'm not very happy about this. This is where, and I thought I could just wait, you know, and like time it, like jump rope. You know, someone brings their kids in, and then I go darting out of the store, uh, but this is not a busy time at 2 o'clock for parents, so nothing's happening. So let's go back upstairs. We can, we'll ride the escalator. You go up the escalator, do you ever realize, only goes one way? So now we're in the restaurant. The escalator only goes one way. They've got Hotel California doors down in the basement. We ride the, the elevator down thinking magically it's going to open up to the lobby. It doesn't, just for the record. And I finally said, Amy, I'm not walking through that whole maze again because it's not worth 50-cent ice cream. So they had this, the, underneath the stairs, they had like this little, just a tiny little gate, you know, like barely. It was like a rope, more or less. And I, I'm going right through there because I, you know where you're at in the store, right? It's just a sign box. I'm like 10 feet from the exit, and I'm like, I'm going, I'm going right there. I can see the exit sign. And Amy's like, don't go do it. Don't do it. No. I'm like, I'm going through it. So I make my way through. And employees, I thought it was straight into the check self-service area. You have to go past employees. There's like this buffer area and they're making eye contact, but I'm not making eye contact. I'm just walking through like I just know what's going on right to the exit and they're about to say something and Amy's nice enough to look at them so they say something to her. I feel at that moment, like when I get out, I felt like Houdini, you know, and I felt, I felt like Kevin Spacey in Shawshank Redemption, you know, like you've been trapped away and I felt so good about myself and I was I'm just prancing right out of that store feeling like I should got to give like a rocky victory. And Amy says to me, what makes you think the rules don't apply to you? 
You know, why do you only have to listen when it's convenient? In my mind, I was justified. In God's mind, I was justified. He was like, go for it. Right. The employees were like, yes, do it, do it. Uh, God never, God never, any time, says you're the judge of the world or you're the judge of the people who have sinned against you. In fact, you and I pray on a regular basis Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. God never slides that into your court and says, you decide when. And I think we feel kind of like I did leaving Ikea. You know, there's, God, you don't quite understand my situation, right? God, you don't quite understand what this person has taken from me. You don't understand what this person has done to me. You don't understand how emotionally I've struggled so, so much and how it changed my outlook on life, and it changed my outlook on people, and I feel like an emptiness when I think about that person. But God does not give you the option to say you only forgive when it's convenient to you. God never says you only forgive when that person grovels at your feet. Because there's going to be a moment where that person has hurt you so bad, and you stand before. But this is what God does says. I do know how you feel. I do know how it feels when people rebel against you. I do know how you feel when people hurt you. I do know how it feels when someone has done something to you because God says you've done it to me. God says, I know what it feels like because you have not respected me. You have not loved me. You have not obeyed me. I do know what it feels like to feel a loss because I lost my only son because of you. We can't just forgive when it's convenient. We can't just forgive when someone grovels at our feet. God says we have to push this in his court. A few years later, a few years later, um, Joseph gets to see his brothers, but this is from Tim Keller. He's a, he's a pastor in New York. He says, God's grace and forgiveness, while free to the recipient, are always costly for the giver. For the earliest parts of the Bible, it was understood that God could not forgive without sacrifice. No one is seriously wrong can just forgive the perpetrator. This doesn't just happen in the click of the fingers. But when you forgive, that means you absorb the loss and the debt. You bear it yourself. All forgiveness then is costly. The Bible says in the Psalms, God does not treat us as our sins deserve, and he has not treated you like your sins deserve. And here is what, here's the moment you are at. That person is standing before you, and you have to decide, am I going to be judge and jury and try and inflict pain to that person, or am I going to put this in God's hands? Am I going to put it in God's hands, and am I going to take the loss for all the pain they've done to me? Forgiveness is a process. It doesn't just happen like that. It, I think God was working on his brother's hearts, and God was working on Joseph's heart, and I pray that God now is working on your own heart as you think about that person who has so, so hurt you. Years later, um, Joseph gets to see his brothers again after his father died, and it says, when Joseph's brothers saw, this is kind of the culmination of the, the life of Joseph, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God, of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. This time, not thinking about the pain that they've done, but this time, 
knowing the state they had been in because they didn't trust in his forgiveness. And his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. He said, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Three things. Uh, number one, forgiveness is a process. And I found in my own life, I always thought you have to change, your heart gets changed and then you start changing your action. I think when it comes to forgiveness, it's actually flipped. And I think you have to treat people like they are forgiven and eventually your heart follows. Because you can't just wait until your heart feels like perfectly good because it's not going to get there. So if you have a family member, you got someone you know, someone you deal with, you have to get to a point where you're acting like they're forgiven and I think your heart will come around. Number two, is if you're having trouble forgiving yourself, and I mentioned all these people you're struggling, and I think for most of you, there's a person and then yourself. God says you are forgiven, and they, I hear people say that. I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Um, you've just made yourself God, just to be frank. You're saying God's approval doesn't matter as much as my own approval of myself, and God does not talk that way. God says, I approve of you, and that's what matters most. And number three, you cannot forgive ever, ever without recognizing what's been forgiven you. The more you struggle with forgiving something, think again as God looked at you in the eyes and said, I know how it feels because you've done it to me and I still forgive you. Every one of us has someone we really struggle to forgive. And I pray that the Lord continues to work in your heart. This process continues and you can get to a point where you can just let that weight go. Amen. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what an amazing life of Joseph. He's He's a, the culmination of what we all want to be as Christians. If facing adversity, facing positive things, uh, he was always your follower and tried to make the best decisions in each case and always proclaiming your glory. We pray that we know that he's not you, though. Um, you're the ultimate Joseph who has lived perfectly and never had doubts in your heart about our own forgiveness, but you still went to the cross just for us. Help us that, that realization that our sins, that giant weight of sins is wrong. You took the loss for us. So as people hurt us, let's not try and get and extract that loss from them, but instead take the loss because no, we know ultimately what has been done for us. We ask this in your name. Amen.